Well, hello everyone, that Williams guy back for another episode. We continue to chug along and we're going to have a very interesting episode. At least I think it's very interesting. I hope that you do as well, because we're going to talk about a very large federal agency that just doesn't get a lot of limelight notice and recognition, but has a very fascinating to me because I, I love this stuff, uh, very fascinating history and operational standpoint and quite frankly, there's just a lot of misinformation out there that maybe we can clear up today. But joining us this morning is Everett Snyder. How you doing, Everett? I'm doing great, Lee. All right, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell everybody where you worked, and that will tell the audience who we're going to talk about. Okay, my name is Everett Snyder. I spent some time in the Air Force. Uh, I retired after 20 years at the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, now I teach part-time in the civilian world at Top Guns in Terre Haute, Indiana. It's just sort of a, what I like to do in my retired years. And that's right. about it. All right. And the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute will be part of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. That yes. Yeah. Yep. So Federal the- Bureau of Prisons. Uh, when I started, it was a standalone U.S. Penitentiary for high security inmates. Uh, in 2005, they built and activated a new U.S. penitentiary and downgraded the old to a medium. Okay. And I guess at some point in time during the, during the interview, we'll talk about the difference in between high security, uh-huh. medium, et cetera. Uh, we'll make a note for the audience. Uh, Everett's video feed is not working, and that's why you're, uh, if you're watching YouTube or Spotify, you're not seeing anything but the phone icon for him. All right, so Eric, uh, how did the Federal Bureau of Prisons come about? Well, a little bit of history. Uh, they really didn't have any. And in uh, 1891, they had a Congress started a Three Prisons Act, which they uh, decided to start three federal prisons. They named U.S. Penitentiary Leavenworth, which a little history with that. People will get confused. There's two Leavenworths. There's the U.S. Army Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth. Then there's USP Leavenworth, which is a civilian bureau of prisons. Uh, also in the Three Prisons Act, they named USP Atlanta and USP McNeil Island in Washington State. Uh, they really didn't start building Atlanta and Leavenworth until 1901 or so. McNeil Island was already existing. so. I'm not sure when the transition started. Leavenworth was actually built with inmate labor from Fort Leavenworth. So that was sort of interesting. Uh, Another little uh, bit of history, USP Leavenworth and USP Atlanta have the same design, which if you look at throughout the history of the Bureau of Prisons with the different architecture, every prison built within a certain decade sort of emulates each other. But the unique thing with Leavenworth and Atlanta is they built a 40-foot-high wall around the exterior of the institution, and it also goes below ground for 40 feet. But you have to think of the uh, fear of escape at the time was tunneling out like you see in the old movies. So that was sort of an interesting thing I learned. Um, The Bureau of Prisons itself didn't become an existing agency until 1930. Okay. you had the Three Prisons Act with those three penitentiaries, and then they built some smaller ones uh, in the 20s. They had a 
lady that was the assistant attorney general, uh, I believe her name was Mabel uh, Wilbrandt, if I'm saying it right. She had a big calling to revamp some of the juvenile uh, institutions and facilities for women. So that's when Alderson in West Virginia, which was a camp, was made and some juvenile uh, facilities, which the feds don't really handle anymore. But back in that time, they sort of did. And uh, 32 was the first actual institution, or excuse me, the first penitentiary, high-level security that was built by BOP when it became an agency, and that was USP Lewisburg. It has an exterior wall sort of similar to Atlanta and Leavenworth, but it's not nearly as tall. And then they started building some medical centers. Alcatraz came on in the 30s. Then uh, they had an interesting thing called the uh, Unicor that come in the 30s, which if you've been in the military, uh, Unicor is a federal prison industries. A lot of the equipment you used was made by federal inmates. So it, if you've got any equipment, look at it. If it says Unicor on it, it'll probably say the institution it was made at in the tag. Right. Now, there are lots of different types of prisons within the federal system. Uh, could you kind of give a rundown of this? Okay, basically, um, there's three types. There's more than that, but the, the bulk of the inmates are held in either a low, a medium, or a high. Your lows are your federal correctional institutions, as well as your mediums. And then your highs are you or titled your United States Penitentiaries or USPs. There's only about 11 or 13 USPs uh, out of 122 institutions. Um, the other security levels is they have a minimum. Everybody, the, the big joke is uh, camp fed, right? Yeah. Everybody else is going to camp fed. You don't do hard time well. Camp inmates are what they call minimum security. And they don't even, those institutions don't even have a fence around it. They're your low level, uh, a lot of politicians, uh, embezzlers, Medicaid fraud, stuff like that. Um, there can be some former penitentiary inmates in a camp, but they've worked their way down with the management variables. And the, they're uh, placed in the institutions. They rate them basically on their crime, their length of sentence, the, the was there any violence in it? And then, then they do this, uh, when they're sentenced, they do a pre-sentence investigation on the inmate. So they basically look at everything. It's a, it's who your parents were, your upbringing, who you ran with, just about every kind of biography on you that could be written out. And that's what they use to place inmates in what they feel is a proper institution. Yeah. Then you're uh oh go ahead, Lee. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Your uh major cities like Chicago, New York, which has been in the funny papers lately, uh San Diego, they have your metropolitan correctional centers. Those institutions generally don't have a fence, they're skyscrapers. They hold your uh short term people that were just sentenced waiting to get 
decide where they're going to get sent to. Um, your pretrial hold, if say the marshal service, FBI arrest somebody, um, they'll either put them there or sometimes with the marshal service, if it's out in the middle of North Dakota where there's no federal institutions, they'll put them in a county jail on a federal writ or federal hold. Yeah, I, I'm aware of that. There are instances where the federal government contracts with, you know, county facilities to hold inmates either for pretrial. Uh, I'm I'm not personally aware of any that they were to do any serving their sentence there, but pretrial uh, I'm personally aware of. Yeah, we don't. Being here with with the big facility, we don't deal with that too much. But uh, back in the '90s, I worked for the Marshal Service for a couple of years as a contract guard. That's sort of how. I got into the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, most people don't grow up saying, hey, I want a career at this federal prison. We just sort of migrate to it, mm-hmm. unless you've got family that's that's went through the ranks. Um, there's a lot of third, fourth generation uh, employees, but most of us just sort of migrate to it because the pay is pretty good. Uh, it's not a bad job. It's a sort of an untraditional kind of law enforcement, even though some people don't consider it that. Um, so I would go to county jails with the regular deputy marshal over Southern District of Indiana, and we would pick up certain like holds for the federal, like ATF picked up a guy one time for restraining order, something, I don't even remember. We had to bring him up to Terre Haute to the federal courthouse, make his arraignment. Then he was held at Vigo County until they decided what they were doing. I don't even remember where he went to trial at or what. So. There's a lot of wheels in motion that people don't understand. Right. I can speak to the county level and the state level on, on Georgia. I can't speak to the other 49 states. In, in Georgia, every county, the sheriff is the chief jailer of the county. And one of the difference between the county jail and the state prison is that the county jail will have both pre-sentence or pre-trial inmates and then they will have what we call a sentenced inmate. And in our jail, they wear different colored uniforms to differentiate them. Um, a pre-trial inmate will obviously be someone who's been arrested and charged with a crime, and they have not been granted bail or bond, and they're being held pending their trial. A sentenced inmate will be someone who's convicted and they're serving their sentence. Now, someone who's convicted of a misdemeanor crime in Georgia, which is less than a 12-month sentence, they would serve that sentence in the county jail. For someone who's convicted of a felony, at that point, they are transferred to the state prison system, our state department of corrections, and they would go. So the state prisons only house convicted felons. And in the county jail, you have the mix of the, the pre-sentence and then the sentence working, excuse me, serving their misdemeanor. Uh, one of the distinctions would be is that uh, a pre-sentenced inmate cannot be placed on work detail because they can't receive any kind of punishment. They have not been convicted of a crime. At least they're not serving time for the conviction of the crime in which they're currently charged. Um, you know, the whole, the standards for use of force change because the Fourth Amendment objective reasonable standard still applies to a pre-sentenced inmate, but once a sentence it's an inmate is sentenced to a crime, they are being punished. The Eighth Amendment 
no cruel and unusual punishment standard applies. And so there, it's a whole juggling game as far as that goes. But there, the prison system, you're going to have all convicted inmates, except for, uh, I think you told me off air, a couple of places that may house a prison inmate. Yeah, normally that's uh, for the feds, that's the, your uh, metropolitan correctional centers, uh, for your major cities. Uh, they'll hold your pretrial inmates, and if they're convicted, if it's a high security, uh, if it's a crime that's going to warrant time in the U.S. penitentiary, they've got some other management variables. Uh, I'm not an expert on that part. I wasn't never case management, but they might be immediately remanded to custody of BOP, so they would be a short-term hold in that MCC and then get shipped out to where whatever facility. They do have a self-surrender uh, program, I guess, or thing they do where even at the medium level uh, at the Federal Correctional Institute, it, when we became a medium, we it wasn't nothing for someone had to show up by 6 p.m. and their family would drop them off and I spent some time as a lieutenant. We'd have to go in, book them in, take them to R&D, basically put them in shoe for the night until all their paperwork caught up and case management could come in and SIS and screen them and figure out what unit they were going to assign them to, stuff like that. So yeah. we have both, what, I guess. We have what we call classifying inmates when they come in. Uh, whoever's doing the booking and the supervisor, they do kind of what you're talking about with, with the, the whole uh, pre-sentence thing there. Um, basically, we look at what their charges are, what their criminal history is, um, a whole bunch of, host of other factors, and then they're assigned to a pod uh, if they're going to be staying with us. They're assigned uh, to a pod of minimum, medium, or maximum, whereas in the feds, you have different facilities for which those inmates go to. Um, I went to do an extradition from a parish prison in Louisiana. Of course, you know, Louisiana is all based on French. They're not counties. They have parish, and they don't call it the county jail. They call it the parish prison. Went to do an extradition of an inmate from one, and this parish was so large, and they had enough actual contracts with the state of Louisiana and the feds to hold, to hold inmates that they had a minimum security facility, a medium and a max facility, just three separate buildings. And you had to go to the correct one to get the, to get the inmate. Um, yeah, people, so one of the things I talk about so much inform, misinformation is people have this picture of what prison or jail is like from TV and the, and the movies. And then there's always this people, I want them punished every minute every second of every day and okay there's got to be some sort of management of inmates and you can't treat a person well you guess you can you shouldn't treat a person who is in jail for or prison for rape and murder the same as someone who's in for tax evasion there's just different levels of bad well i to me, with just my experience, it seems like the feds does a pretty good job. BOP always did as far as your minimum and your your medium and your uh, high security. Uh, only certain high security inmates would ever work their way down to a, a camp. There's some that just aren't going to do it. They, 
as crazy as it sounds, they might be immediately released at the end of their sentence, which yeah. uh, for your viewers, if they didn't know, um, the BOP or the federal government did away with parole in 1985. So unless you're an old school convict from the 70s, you're probably not going to go to a parole hearing. There's a couple of them still left, but very few and far between this, this far out. Um, but they do 85% of their time behind a fence. Um, as far as management, um, they do, you know, incident reports and all that can affect on getting good conduct time taken or commissary restriction or whatever. That works more with your low and your medium. But if you're dealing with an inmate like at Terre Haute at the pen that's doing four life sentences, what's that going to do to this guy? He's got no visits for five years unless it's a PVS visit, which is a clergy community. Uh, folks will come in and visit with inmates, a uh, little program religious services has. Uh, but as far as family, either their families all died off or disowned them, so they've not seen them. Incident reports don't go a whole lot with somebody doing four life sentences. So you got to sort of learn to to deal with it in other ways. And it, as crazy as it sounds, it's all about respect. Um, it can be the most heinous inmate that you deal with as far as his crime. But you got to sort of give them what they've got coming by policy whether you agree with it or not, and he might be the biggest pain in your side. But if he's got something coming by policy, you got to sort of give it to him. That's what gets people hemmed up more than anything, and it causes a lot of issues unit-wise or can boil over into other, other issues if you don't. Yep. And I'm sure that's what results in a lot of, say, lawsuits against the BOP. Well... Yeah, I mean, they've got a pretty good program as far as suing an individual staff member. Um, they've got a – if they've got a grievance, like they they were supposed to get something and they didn't or whatever, uh, something major, they follow BP – what they call a BP-8 through their counselor. Well, they get told no on that. They can appeal it to a 9 and a 10, 11 through the region. It goes all up to the regional office. Um, they've got to go through all those hoops to file in federal court against a, a staff member. If they skip one, the U.S. attorney will throw it out. Um, I was uh, subject to a lawsuit several, several years ago. Um, all I did was respond to an incident where an inmate tried to stab another inmate. That inmate took the knife away and beat him up with it. All I did was put cuffs on this this guy. Well, five years later, here I am, have to ask for a legal counsel through the uh, regional office of the U.S. attorney, and they end up throwing it out because he didn't go through the yeah. 8, 9, 10, 11 BP process. So they do a pretty good job of uh, throwing out the frivolous ones, mm -hmm. so to speak. But uh, – Like anywhere, anybody can get sued for any anything. It's just uh, what uh, it is. Nature of the beast. All right. Now, Terre Haute is where the federal death penalty is carried out, correct? 
Yes, it's the uh, only federal death row unit in the country as of now. Okay. And you guys, house, that's where Tim McVeigh was housed, was on death row, and that's where his sentence was carried out, correct? Yeah, I uh, I hired in. They had just activated about six months before I hired in. I hired in April 2000. Uh, so, and it was supposed to be a special unit. It's called special confinement unit. Uh, it was supposed to be like GS-8, which is a, the grades that, uh, as an officer, you start out at either a GS-5 or 6, go to a 7. Then 8 at the time was competitive. They've changed that. You get it automatically now, try to boost the uh, people to come in to work. And But as a rookie, I sort of got thrown in there, uh, which wasn't a big deal. I, I learned a lot from a lot of good, solid staff members. Um, it was interesting how they did it. So I got to deal with that a little bit my first year and a half. Um, so ultimately, when a federal inmate is sentenced to death and their sentence is going to be carried out, at some point they get transferred into Terre Haute, correct? Yes, at some point. Um, I've seen it both ways. Uh, I've seen really, really super high-profile inmates uh, like Sonaris, not to give him any publicity, the, the Boston bomber. Mm-hmm. He gets sent to ADX, even though he had a sentence to death, because his lawyers argued from what I read, he wasn't, he still got appeals going this, that, and the other. And then we've had other less known death row inmates get sent right there, but he didn't have the notoriety or probably the uh, legal support that. So what, what's ADX? Had. That, that's the uh, administrative maximum at Florence. It's uh, referred to as Alcatraz of the Rockies. Okay. Um, several institutions, like when we built the new penitentiary at Terre Haute, we quit being a standalone USP and we became a federal correctional complex. That's all the rage now. The last 25 years is to build a couple different prisons at one place, which sort of makes sense in a way, as far as you have shared services, some of your facility staff and some that. But once you get more than two prisons, it really gets sort of big and becomes a sort of hard to manage as far as keeping staff hired. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that's constant with the Bureau of Prisons is inmates are moving and staff are moving. They're getting yeah. promoted, taking transfers somewhere else, transferring to marshal service, FBI, wherever. So there's always movement. And the bigger the complex, yeah. the more wheels are turning, it's hard to keep going. Yeah, you got to have something like that in an area with enough population that you can hire staff from. Yeah. uh, There was always, I mean, the rumor monster, right? Uh, There's always talk about building a third one at Terre Haute. I don't think we can. It was about good. And even now, from talking to to former coworkers still there, um, they're working a ton of overtime to fill in. You know, and, and it's not a COVID thing. It's just, it, it's hard to fill positions. Yeah. They have a pretty, uh, we've had a pretty good background check that um, unfortunately just some minor credit issues kept good folks from getting hired. They've had to get that cleared up. And so that sort of hurt us. 
because we do the same background check as the U.S. Marshal Service and several other federal agencies. So it's pretty stringent to get on. Yeah. What is the basic training like for a Bureau of Prisons uh, officer? Well, it's, I'm just going to tell you the evolution at Terre Haute because every institution is maybe going to do it a little different. Um, when I hired in, we had uh, a week and a half, two weeks of what they call institutional familiarization where you go over classes and, uh, because you get a pool of people that with prior military law enforcement or you get some folks that's never done anything, never shot a firearm, anything. So they, it's, it's pretty basic. Uh, then they sort of throw you to the wolves kind of thing. They, they give you with the senior staff members sort of keep eyes on you. That's how it was when I rolled in. Uh, Terre Haute around 2005, seven, when we got the new institution and became a complex, we had a bunch of staff members because we did a lot of hiring. So we had the luxury of putting everybody on a week of OJT after IF. And then we sort of kept that. I think it's still going on. Um, I've not talked to anybody specifically about that. But as of two years ago, when I retired, they were still getting a week to sort of walk around with staff members and mirror them and just sort of see what's shadow them and see what's going on, how, how stuff works. Because they've got the, uh, the, the way that they tell you that it's supposed to be and then the sort of the line you sort of have to walk like everything. And then at some point, it's supposed to be within the first year you go to Fletzy, uh, it's a three-week course, a week of its firearms, and then the other two weeks, uh, a lot of different scenarios on dealing with inmates, uh, a lot of verbal judo, kind of how to talk an inmate down, things like that. Okay. Uh, the, the problem with Glinko, with how they were running it, is there's only 11 or 12 U.S. penitentiaries. We have a different kind of inmate population than these lows and mediums so a lot of the stuff they did at Glinko was for the other yeah. 110 prisons not mm -hmm. so much the penitentiary so yeah. I almost wish they had a, a different week longer thing for that yeah, I've got a friend that's a, a federal agent and when he talks about certain training at, at Fletzy he says Fletzy has a lot of daddies and Fletzy has to keep them all happy. And so mm -hmm. you get this this general watered down, you know, catch all approach that kind of works for everybody, but then again, does it like in your talking about with the with the USPs, okay, there's specific stuff they need that a general program's just not going to cover. And I guess that's what you get in your basic your institutional field training programs. Well, and one thing we run into with we get a lot of a lot of folks from the state. They hire because BOP pays double, triple the money. Uh, we got a lot of good overtime, so everybody goes to the state to get experience, and they come over. The problem with a lot of state prisons, and I'm not knocking anybody that works there. It's just the inmate that they have are they're not high security inmates, so. Uh, and it, like I mentioned earlier, an incident report means something to somebody that 
is getting out in six months or two years or isn't really a problem. That means a lot. Yeah. So they'll come over and they'll want to sort of, I really hate the movie, the Shawshank Redemption. I despise that movie because it makes everybody look stupid on the yeah. take, dirty, mm-hmm. just a bunch of Percy kind of things from the green mile. And that's yeah. not the case, but you get these and generally it's younger. I'm not picking on anybody, but mm-hmm. it's the, the 20 somethings that want to be that trooper on the interstate. Right. They want to try to write all these tickets or, and they, they get, I've seen them get laughed out of housing units and we've had to go in as, as senior staff and sort of bomb, wash the waters and pull the youngsters aside and say, Hey, uh, this might work better for you. You know, yeah. it, if a guy's doing four life sentences, don't go run up and give him a rash of crap because he got a sandwich out of food service. Uh, if that's the worst thing he did, your your shift's golden. <laughs> that's your leverage if he does. Now, the major stuff, if they're making any kind of homemade intoxicants, weapons, any kind of drugs you find, stuff like that, yeah, obviously hammer them. That's that's a serious serious thing. But if a guy has an extra magazine and he's only supposed to have three, he's got four. That's really not worth your time. Right. So, and that's how you sort of build that respect issue with these these folks doing three, four, sometimes not getting out. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one thing is for the public to understand is the corrections officers and everything, they still have to manage and manage these people who know that they're going to die in prison or they know they got years uh, to go. And there's got to be some incentive for them not to be a constant fight or a constant problem. And, you know, people, you know, you get one image the public has of, like you're saying, all the guards are corrupt on the take or that it's all just constant on the rock pile and then there's this other that it makes do nothing but lay around watch cable tv all day and that's just not the case uh those are certain things those are those are privileges that it may certain okay if you if your unit goes for a week uh you know this whole week without any discipline problem you may get to watch something on tv and that is a motivation for that unit to you know, for everybody in that unit to pitch in and not act up for that whole week, and they might get to watch part of a football game on Sunday or something, or you know, and that's just one example. In our jail, um, the inmates only get three channels, and the staff decides which channel they're going to get and what time they're going to get which channel. Uh, so it's not like they're sitting in there with a remote control in their in the unit. Uh, deciding that they're going to watch it all laying around all day. They only get so much time in their in their common area. They get so much time in a rec yard. They get so much time and uh, you know, and all that is determined based on their classification. You know, a max inmate may get one hour out of their cell a day, and the rest of the time they're in a cell with the door shut, and then yeah, they may have a book or a magazine to read, but that's it. Whereas a minimum inmate. Uh, may get six hours out of their cell and I don't remember the exact number on that and that's just an hour jail and that's not going to apply to everywhere but there are systems that are in place uh, for managing all those kind of things and for inmates to maybe go up and down in the classification system depending on how they are behaving in jail and that gives them um, 
incentive to behave. Like, and I'll give a for instance. In our jail, the the way they order what we call their commissary, which like they get like snacks or something like that outside of the meal time. Um, the kiosk where they order that is in the rec yard. Well, if they are on a disciplinary lockdown, they don't get to go to the rec yard, which means they also don't get to get things off their commissary. And so they only get the very basic necessities, such as a roll of toilet paper or something like that. They don't get to get like a couple of Jolly Ranchers or something to have. And those are just incentives of, I don't want to do the things that get me on a disciplinary lockdown because I want to be able to have a Jolly Rancher this week. <laughs> and that's just an example of of things. Do you, you have something like that in the feds? Yeah. Um, it's funny because uh, a lot of the toughest talkers are the ones that don't work housing units uh-huh. as far as, as staff members. You know, you, you got some compound officer, you know, they, yeah. Some of those those guys are on a different, uh, you know, they want to run tough guy. And I'm not saying you, you just got to deal with these guys. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as you get the respect built early and they know where you're standing, you generally don't have any issues. Yep. Um, as far as the TV stuff, uh, <laughs> it's funny because when I hired in, they had just quit. They were letting these my security inmates have, they have TV rooms. They were letting them out till like two in the morning in these TV rooms. And surprise, all the, all the bad stuff happened then. Right. Yep. Uh, so they cut them down to 1130. When I hired in, we would lock them down at 1130. Uh, then we, around 2003, we got a sort of a new older school warden, uh, that he was like, why are we doing this? We're the only penitentiary. And one thing the BOP does, is they do a lot of analysis. So they looked at all these incidents. Like 60% of our, our serious incidents, what they call body alarms, staff calling for assistance, stuff like that, <clears throat> happen after the 9-15 count. So, all right, we're going to lock everybody down at 9-15 and count at 9-30 now. Yeah. And it cut our incidents down dramatically i mean we still had a lot but we knew it was only going to be until nine or so um then they anytime like a super bowl was on or something they would do late night viewing it would be like a exception for that event unless somebody if we had an incident on rec yard then everybody lost that privilege so the administration decided to do things like that, and it seemed to work. You know, some of the officers grumbled, you know, but I'm like, well, you're on the you're on the clock till like midnight anyway, so you know, yeah, they're watching a game; it's not a big deal. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We we've occasionally used something like that, and and I'm talking about the previous administration, not the current one. Um, yeah, Georgia was playing for the national championship. Okay, if there were no disciplinary incidents this week, we'll let you watch, you know, part of the game. And that is an incentive for them to behave. And, and the old retired sheriff, uh, his name was Bill Lemmicks of Clayton County, Georgia, that taught jail management. Uh, one of my first exposures to, to jail management training was with him. And he said, there's three rules to running a jail. And I 
you know, I'm sure this applies to prisons and stuff as well. So there, one, there's no excuse for a nasty jail. Uh, two, if your staff won't eat it, you best not serve it. And number three is if you don't have consequences, you don't have control. And so there has to be consequences to their actions inside of the walls or you don't have control of the prison or it's going to be a cut or the jail. You're going to be in a constant war and battle with these people. And that's going to lead to people getting hurt, people being out of work, people quitting, et cetera. And, and it's just, it, I know there's people listening to this that are, if they're still with us that are screaming at their car radio or their computer or whatever right now, no, 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 it should be a constant lockdown. It should be whatever. Yeah. That's just not going to work. Well, let me tell you, that is such a labor intensive. If you've ever Mm -hmm. done one, you won't want to do one again. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Maybe a couple different jobs in a prison is great, but you're Mm -hmm. working three times as hard. You've got to sling trays for everybody in your unit. Yep. So you got 120 inmates, um, you know, and if you get that pain in the rear staff member, we've all got them, a couple of them. I don't care what department you're on. Right. You know who I'm talking about that won't lift a hand to help you. So you got to, you know, feed 120 people. You got to go around and pick up 120 trays, count them, make sure you get all the trays back. Uh, Then you've got trash issues. You got to either do it yourself or get an orderly if the shift lieutenant will approve it to go around and get trash. Otherwise your whole unit's going to have trash all over. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a cat and mouse game. You got to sort of know how to be a little smarter than they are. Yep. Um, and by all rights, I don't care who you are. If you're in a six by nine cell, you don't want trash piling up. I mean, come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially if it's a three or four day lockdown. Right. And like the most we can lock an inmate down for is three days. In, in our system, uh, I'm, of course, you know, we're dealing with well, also we have free trial inmates, we have everything else that's going on in there as well. Uh, let's circle back around to the death row thing because there's a very interesting bit of uh, I don't know if you call it history or trivia about the uh, death row facility there at Terre Haute, and that has to deal with a particular tree. And uh, yes. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure at this point the audience has figured out, you know, because I've talked about when Brian's been on the show, it's like, hey, I know Brian Eastridge and his father was involved in the the Murrah Federal uh, Courthouse bombing in Oklahoma City, and I know another guy who's been involved with the other end of this at Terre Haute. Well, I'm sure, all this has figured out by now. That's you. Uh, you know, I was visiting Brian in Oklahoma City a couple of weeks ago, and we went to the the courthouse bombing side in the museum there well brian points out that there is an elm tree that survived the bombing blast and it is called the surviving survivor elm and in the museum you know gift shop there there are ways you can get cuttings from the survivor elm well one of those cuttings made its way to Terre Haute, indiana didn't it yes it did uh... and where is it planted it is in the middle of the circle drive outside the death house or execution chamber. Mm-hmm. And when McVeigh was executed, it was titled Operation Elm Tree on that behalf. Okay. And it is really a pretty, pretty big uh, 
for you by now, but yeah, they planted it right away, right when they, uh, Terre Haute was designated to house the federal death row sometime in like 93, 94 timeframe. And I'm not sure when they started construction, but it was already in place because death row was already um, established and they had inmates there when I hired in in 2000 and they'd already planted that tree. Um, so well, sort of neat that uh, something from Oklahoma made it all the way there just for anybody that sort of follows history and, and current events. Uh, did McVeigh see the elm tree when he was transported to the to the execution chamber? Yeah, uh, I'm sure he did. I, I was in a tower, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know what was going on in the van, but I'm pretty uh, sure he walked right past it or was driven right past it. Um, there's another interesting uh, stat that a lot of people don't know with, with McVeigh. He was only convicted of eight counts of murder. Um, you got to look back into that time frame in the 90s. Uh, the government had this big concern because that's when the sovereign citizen movement and the militia movement started gaining a lot of traction in the, in the media. People started sort of following it a little bit. They were worried about a mistrial or an acquittal. So only following the eight counts of murder of the federal officers in the building, that left them open if he got acquitted they could turn around and, and file 160 other counts and it wasn't double jeopardy. Right. So in fact, when it came time to get executed, they sort of fought that because all these other folks in Oklahoma were going to get to watch the execution, but he wasn't convicted of their family members murder. So right. his attorney sort of fought that, but the government's like threw it out and said, no, get over it. They're watching. So, yeah. All right. Um, now they bring in guards or officers that have not been directly involved with housing the inmate to actually take them to the to the execution chamber, correct? Yeah, how they do it is uh, the uh, Bureau of Prisons has a what they call crisis management teams, and there's like six teams. Uh, you got crisis support team, uh, then your special operation response team. That's your Warren's a lethal option for anything. A lot of people associate hostage rescue, but the bulk of that is moving high-profile, high high-risk inmates, VIP protection. Then you've got your disturbance control team, which do more of the, the sticks and gas and inmate movements inside the facility. Uh, they work hand-in-hand. Thorpe -hand. Um, moves the death row inmates to the death house, Fair Hope does, but then they'll TDY staff from other institutions. Once the death row inmate is inside the facility or turned over, all those staff are non-Terre Haute staff. And the reason they do that is everybody's, most people have heard like a Stockholm syndrome. They're, they're trying to keep that from happening. So to, to take the, uh, because somebody's on death row for, you know, 10 or 20 years, uh, if you're that case manager, you're dealing with that inmate every every day. And everybody, 
should be professional and okay, here's the line, don't cross it. But at the end of the day, some people are human and that's the very small percentage of staff that get in trouble for trafficking or whatever. It's normally like not a traumatic incident of Stockholm syndrome, like where you're held hostage, but over time you just sort of, they quit looking at that inmate like an inmate. So I think that was put into place. Uh, the guy that sort of wrote the program still lives local. Um, smart dude. I, I don't think that rock was left unturned when he wrote that whole program up. Uh, um, could you discuss some of the other special teams that that exist in the BOP? Okay. Um, I, I mentioned Fort and DCT. Then you've got your command center. Uh, could, you, could you explain staff. what those could you explain what those acronyms mean? Because the, okay, the, gov- the government loves their alphabet suit. I know they do. And sometimes you just sort of forget. Yeah. <laughs> so you spew it out like uh, even my wife looks at me like, what? Yeah. Uh, okay. Your crisis support team is uh, made up. They're the most activated team in the Bureau of Prisons. They've got psychologists, uh, doctors, everything, and they activate them anytime if a staff member gets seriously injured from an inmate attack. Uh, we had a severe flooding uh, issue here in 2007-8. They were activated because we had several staff members lost their houses. Um, unfortunately, uh, we have staff members that commit suicide, uh, so they activate those to sort of lend, lend a little hand and ear to, to folks suffering. Then your special operations response team, or SORT, which I was part of for about 11, 12 years, uh, they're your lethal force option for the warden. Um, A big section of training is like building entries, hostage rescue, but the bulk of our activations we're doing inmate transports. Uh, We go to Lewisburg, pick up a, a special management inmate that was going to the ADX in Florence. We'd bring him back, remain overnight at Terre Haute. Next day, we'd go somewhere. I won't say where, but we generally, uh, we used to drive all the way to Florence, but that got to be pretty taxing. So we split the trip with the Florence team and met them. Uh, they also have been activated uh, to go to like hurricane, they fall into the marshal service when all this happens. So everybody sort of jokes about, oh, you're just a guard or officer. Well, you got statutory powers of arrest, even without being activated with the marshal service. But our assort team gets activated and goes to Florida. They've been to Texas. They've been to the uh, disturbances in DC a couple years ago. So they can go all over just on a whim. You get that phone call. Uh, and it happens. DCT sort of supplements. They do a lot of inmate movements if we're locked down. Uh, one example, we had a fight on the rec yard with a bunch of uh, dirty white boys, ABs, like 200 inmates going at it, bone crusher shanks, everything. It was on a Sunday. I'm getting ready to go on a motorcycle ride, phone rings. We go in there, like nine people getting car to hospital. So DCT and sort comes in. We've got a rec yard full of inmates, so we got to go out there, flex scuff all of them, search them, 
did a medical assessment on every inmate to note injuries. So if they were involved or not, uh, review SIS or special investigation section would be reviewing cameras, speak if they could ID the key players, stuff like that. So while DCT and SORT are separate, they also work together um, because everybody on SORTs train with the less lethal and use that um, to sort of supplement DCT on, on your bigger events. Uh, DCT also was pretty crucial as far as on executions as uh, doing the outer perimeter uh, around the grounds because our institution, 1,100-acre facility, uh, were butted right up against the Wabash River. So basically, sea, air, and land, you could get invaded. So um, the, without the DCT team, uh, I mean, they were in, they helped out a lot. I know some of the sort guys, don't. There, there's that inner inner team rivalry, right, sort DCT, but uh, you sort of got to work together because you're all in the mission together to, for the all-out outcome. Uh, and it's also not uncommon to TDY other sort teams into Terre Haute for things like executions. Uh, if something goes on in Florida, you have to link up with other sort teams from other institutions and go there as one unit. Uh, and not every institution has a sort team. There's only like, I think, 26 sort teams in the country out of 122 institutions. So it's it's a special team. Not everybody has it. Most everybody does have a disturbance control team. Um, anything else you could say about transports that doesn't give away operational security? Uh, no. Uh, we're... We're pretty blessed at Terre Haute because, uh, and I'm not giving away any family secrets. Uh, it's, it's in the program statement. Anybody's free to research it, uh, inmate.com. Once you take one inmate trip out, half the institution knows what, what time it is. Um, as far as a basic escort, Terre Haute is very unique in we're one of the few institutions that everybody gets issued a firearm, and it's treated pretty, we got a pretty good rapport with local law enforcement. So uh, we're treated very good uh, where some other as a country are not. Um, other places aren't issued, that they're only issued maybe one firearm. Uh, I won't get into the sort moves, that's a totally different uh, animal, but uh, Yeah, and this is one thing for for the audience is okay. When these people get convicted, they've got to get from where their trial was held to the prison where they're going to be held to serve their sentence. All right, that's the most critical security juncture of this whole thing because when they're at the local corrections facility or jail being held, okay, they're in a facility with a bunch of people there to guard and deal with it. When they're at the prison, there's a bunch of security in place to do it. But when they're getting moved, it's just the people that are immediately there with that inmate. And so that's pretty stressful. And um, it, it's a pretty big deal having done interstate in, uh, extraditions and everything. It's, you're on your own out there with that guy or gal. Um, um, it, it's it's a big deal. Well, one, one thing that was sort of unique, normally uh, – 
marshal service will come in they'll take an inmate to what they call take him out to rec he's going to trial yeah. sometimes though if it's in Terre Haute federal court with a few days it's open they'll, they'll take him out there come back they're back in a couple two or three hours but a lot of times our inmates have to go to Indianapolis so the marshal will come in normal inmates will go um, John Walker Lynn also known as American Taliban we had him in a our communications management unit which is another special unit uh, was suing the government so he had to go to federal court in Indianapolis and the marshal service there's only 13 U.S. Marshals in Southern District of Indiana in the Indianapolis office. That's a big task. So the SORT team got activated, and the SORT team actually basically served as Marshal Service, supplementing them, and took him to court, which normally doesn't happen unless it's a high-profile kind of thing. So that was sort of unique. Yeah. Uh, we had two deputies go to – Kansas or, or actually to Nebraska to pick up an inmate and as they're coming back through Kansas they notice a car is trailing along with with them and they get on the horn and, and get in touch with the Kansas State Patrol who catches up with them or whatever Kansas's highway patrol is uh, catches up to them and stops the car and it turns out it's the girlfriend of the inmate and she's trailing along hoping that there's a chance that he can make an escape and they can do their getaway. And, and that that's the kind of thing that you have to worry about when you got somebody out in a car transporting them. And I'm sure. Well, and, and you, it's funny because, vehicles, but yeah, go ahead. Well, a lot of people, that's just the case you heard about or knew mm-hmm. could confirm how many of them right. could have been, but you didn't know right. that they were there. Um, we had a, High-profile death row inmate we went to Springfield to get and come back middle of the night. Well, this guy has a million-dollar bounty to get him out. I'm not making this up. Uh, access to $100 million and ties of Vladimir Putin. Uh, you think our hair wasn't up a little bit? Yeah. So we're outside Springfield, about 20 miles, and which we were loaded for bear. That's what we do. And we passed two vehicles that were sort of similar to a basic transport vehicle. Our stuff wasn't basic, but mm-hmm. at two in the morning on I-44, wasn't nothing. I don't know, but it got my attention real quick. But uh, we were, I think, so overwhelming force in the way we were driving. Right. Reckless. We have a certain way we drive. Uh, mm-hmm. They just, if it was anything, related they disengaged because of just the yeah the side of us i guess yeah and of course for routine movements like you transfer from one facility to another you can kind of do that with them not knowing what time it's going to happen but they know when they're going to court oh yeah the, the yep, lawyers know. know when they're going to court the people at the courthouse know when they're coming uh, news media knows when they're coming and so those movements are a little more hairy because everybody knows that the guy's on the, or gal's on the move at that point. And you, know, you have to be very, very, very careful during those things. Um, um, let's switch gears here a little bit. And 
you know, the, this this show often deals with with firearms training. So let's go to the firearms history. You know, what 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 was the BOP originally issued all the way up through what are they issuing now, and kind of talk about the training aspect. So, what was the original firearm that was issued for BOP? Well, until recently, it sort of was a smorgasbord of, of guns. Um, starting out um, from people I've talked to. Obviously, the Model 10 revolvers, the police positives, the uh, 1903 Springfields, and the 1897 trench guns, some uh-huh. uh, Model 12 Winchester uh, pump actions up through the uh, probably 60s. Uh, I know in recent, from the 80s on, they were had some Model 10s and some police positives for handguns, uh, they actually had some M1 carbines up until like 89, 90, I think they were using. Uh, and the penitentiaries had M14s in the towers up until like 95, 96. Uh, I think Terre Haute was one of the last ones that I was told that had the M14s uh, along with the M16s. I'm not sure when the 16s came on, probably sometime mid 80s i'm presuming uh as far as semi-automatics um they went to some smith and wessons early on in the 90s nine millimeter uh supposedly there was a lawsuit i don't know but then they got ruger p89 double action only Uh talk about a boat anchor but when i hired in we were running the p89s uh in when I went to Glencoe in 2000, they had P89 double action onlys and some P93 double action onlys, the smaller aluminum frame. Mm-hmm. I went to Springfield, Missouri in 2004. I uh, got selected to be a farms instructor and we shot P94s and nine mil P89s and some P95s, all double action only. Mm-hmm. Um, the P95 was a polymer time, frame. Yeah, the P95 was a polymer frame. Around that time, the Bureau went to the 92 Vertex in the D model, double action only. Um, I'm a revolver guy. Uh, I started out in the Air Force with a revolver. And uh, the the old Vietnam vet guys were sort of my mentors. I feel like I was trained right. <laughs> so I, I love a revolver, but the the bureau qualification just for employment, they, they shoot 30 rounds. This is not for trip officers. It's a different course, but just for employment, it's a 30 round course, uh, 12 rounds at three yards, 18 rounds at seven. Uh, I mean, Ray Charles could could pass that thing. Uh, a double action only Beretta is not a great gun to issue someone that only shoots once a year. Yeah. That's just my opinion for whatever it's worth as a, as a revolver guy, but not a bad gun if you shoot a lot, but that's what we had. And we had a pretty uh, resourceful lock shop officer who the lock shop is the department that's over all the firearms and the locks and the security department. 
he uh around 2007 we were going back to supposed to be going back to ruger the, the bureau can make up their mind what gun they want uh he secured a bunch of double action only beretta centurions from the va police because they were moving to six um those worked out pretty good um now in 2014 they were supposed to be going to smith and wesson mmps but if you go to glencoe you get a shoot a block so there's sort of a smorgasbord still but now fast forward the general issue is supposed to be a glock 47 they're mirroring off the uh, department of homeland security contract and i talked to a guy a couple weeks ago he said supposedly Terre Haute got their first shipment of 47s in i've not confirmed it but uh I think that'll be a better gun for all across the board because those, those uh, Berettas were pretty long in the tooth. Yeah. Uh, as far as sort, they had their specialty guns, which we were, when I got on sort, uh, SIG 228, 9mm, uh, and an MP5 was the two basic platforms. We had M16s, and then you had your sniper rifles. Uh, the sniper rifles, selection was more of a smorgasbord than the handguns. Um, I got selected to go to sniper school or marksman observer school in 2007. And I went to Camp Landing, Florida. It was through Fletzy. Uh, the guy that ran the program, uh, great dude. He, uh, very knowledgeable. He was actually on the sort team at Talladega, Alabama when they had the riots in 91, he made entry. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the history with that is a bunch of Cuban inmates took over. So they called FBI's HRT team. So when they, uh, Attorney General Barr gave them the okay to, to do the immediate assault, the Talladega sort basically went after the inmates to contain them and HRT went to secure and, and rescue the staff members that were held hostage. So he was part of that. So I've been sort of blessed as far as getting to pick ears of people that were in some pretty phenomenal crisis situations, but he ran that sniper program pretty good. Uh, but to get back on track on the guns, I went down there, I had an old Remington uh, I saw SIG Blazer back when they made the Blazers. I saw Accuracy Internationals. I saw McMillan's. I saw some just Remington M40s, just about anything that had a bolt on it in a Remington action. What was there? Um, we got some Chandler sniper rifles on Remington actions shortly after that, which were really, really good rifles. Um, I think a little bit overkill for a law enforcement mission, but I wouldn't complain about getting to shoot it every month. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the, the just the run of the mill firearms training for a just standard BOP employee? Okay, for okay, they, they they break it down in layers. Basically, you've got your uh, standard for employment. Um, the story has it that. They were, everybody was required to shoot the BPT course, which is a 30, a 66 round course out to 25 yards. Uh, 
but a significant number of people were failing. Well, that was a condition of employment. So they changed it and made one just for employment was this 30 round, what they call an ART, annual refresher training course. Um, it's pretty easy. We actually just for a joke blindfolded ourselves and shot it one day and we passed. Uh, this was an instructor's at lunch when you yeah. everything was safe. It's just one or two people at a time with somebody standing by them. So your audience doesn't go oh, yeah. safety. Uh, just as a trial to see if we could do it. Uh, it is pretty easy. They just count hits and you only need this 21 out of the 30 rounds need to be somewhere on a man sized silhouette. Um, then your BPT goes by points. So you've got to have at least 247 points out of 330. Um, then your, your instructors have to shoot higher than that. And then sword has to have 286, I believe was the cutoff. Uh, then as far as sword training, we had our own firearms training. We did every month. Um, we did a lot of tactical stuff with, with full kit, MP5s, uh, ARs, shotguns, then our SIGs, um, which we went way above and beyond. But as far as running the training program, uh, I was a line instructor from 2004 to 2011. In 11, I was selected to attend lead firearm school. So I was basically the lead firearms and I sort of supervised 16 instructors. Um, how I ran it, I treated it different because a four, in the Bureau of Prisons, everybody has to be qualified on firearm as far as BOP employees. So I sort of wasn't as rough on a four foot nine religious services secretary as I was a trip officer who that was his bread and butter. He, he needs to know better and do better. So I was sort of on him a little bit more. He just needed to qualify an ART course to keep her job. We're not going to hand her a gun in a crisis. She's going to be our recorder, right? Yeah. And then the sort guys, I definitely was harder on that because that's what you're supposed to be doing. So that's sort of how I broke up my, and some, some folks liked it, some didn't, but, um, funny story. Uh, the, the lock shop person that heard the uh, VA guns, he was referred to as the bad range guy. And I was a good range guy because <laughs> I didn't get too upset about much as far as with the secretary and he just sort of had a early army attitude on life uh this kid was sort of failing kid new to firearms uh we were running a, a basic prisoner transport class so a little bit more intense shooting yeah. well he was he was trying he was legitimately trying and listening and uh so my body starts wanting to just start doing the drill instructor thing. And I'm like, you know, let's just talk to, you know, we're, we're giving him a loaded gun. We're getting through the, let, let's, he's getting there. Well, he starts yelling, you need to just get your, pull your head out, blah, blah, blah. And this kid's like, let me back up. The, this guy is a, there should only be one gun allowed. And that's a Glock, Glock only. He's a Glock fanatic. 
Well, this kid goes, well, I, I'm really trying. I bought my first gun. My buddy goes, well, what'd you get? Well, I got a Glock. That's, oh, it'll be all right, buddy. We'll get you there. It was just like snap. Change <laughs> is added. So we didn't give him a hard time for that or nothing for years yeah. past. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I'm sure it never came up again. No, no. <laughs> Funny range stories. But uh, the, the, we got a decent firearms program. It's just like a lot of agencies. Uh, and Fletzy, Fletzy's got some great training. I got some great training on the sort side. Because uh, I was a sort trainer as well. I'd go to you and certify other sort teams. Uh, but the problem I had is a lot of the line instructors, if they let some of us pick them, they worked out pretty good, but if it was one of those, we all got those political appointees, they, they generally didn't work out too well and they were crappy instructors. They didn't know how. They were they were great for being a safety monitor and running a test, administering that yearly test to qualify. But as far as uh, one year earlier podcast, you mentioned about quit jerking the trigger, Yeah. but they don't know how to tell you to quit jerking the trigger. Mm-hmm. But I tried to, inform folks on hey this is how your hands work and this is and one thing that helped me was i did a lot of reading i I followed like guys like dave spalding super's corner stuff like that from the 80s and 90s and then i was fortunate enough to go to some training with dave i just went to training with you last year Um, i wish Fletzy would incorporate some of the stuff from the civilian side and it would make people be able to troubleshoot why students or why agents are failing. Yeah. And then these courses wouldn't have to get changed or watered down. I mean, even the air marshals watered their course down. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know if the joke originated with Tom Givens, but he's where I heard it from. Is you know, what's the number one injury for firearms instructors? And it's throwing their back out while lowering the bar. Yep. That's a that's a <laughs> that's a spot on uh, example. Um, well, and even even the the sort teams when to get on sort, you had to get vetted. Basically, you could turn in your memo. They had a they put a, a announcement. Hey, we're taking tryouts, and you put a memo in and list some stuff or whatever. But you're already sort of getting recruited when you start in uh, working for BOP. Um, different. People like lead, team leaders and such, they they would sort of, hey, this this new cat, he's squared away, he does his job. Let's, and if you got a little military background or something, you you, you talk throughout the shift, and they're sort of like, hey, would you be interested? Uh, not everybody that turns in a memo gets invited to try out, but it was a pretty brutal day, physical, and then you had this hellacious interview with the team and basically if one person on the team had a had an issue or some red light they would discuss it and if the other team members could hey let's just you know give this kid a chance or whatever then you get voted on and then of course the warden had to approve you captain all that but uh it was pretty strenuous to get on but we only had a about a 12 or 15 man team it was pretty small um but we were good when we became the complex, they started moving the numbers up or they wanted the numbers up. So it seemed like that bar started getting lowered there too. So you got some people that, I mean, I'm not to be mean or nasty, but 
I wouldn't have picked them. Yeah. But new era. And yeah. I'm retired, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything about the, the BOP or any of the stuff we discussed tonight that you would like to let the audience know that I did not ask you about? Uh, well, hopefully I sort of got off track a couple times. Hopefully, uh, not too bad, but, uh, it, it's interesting if anybody is under 37 and interested in a, a career, uh, check it out. It's, it's, it's not a romantic, uh, <laughs> fulfilling, you're not going to be a hero by anybody's means, but, uh, and, and that's one of the problems I've sort of got with. The, the thing with you do important work behind the, the fence, right? Uh, I don't know how many inmates I've talked off the ledge, so to speak. Uh, and you, you just don't get a lot of attention about how good you did do. Uh, and the media is sure not going to tell you. I mean, you got movies like Shawshank Redemption, everybody in the media or any movie, how do they portray prison? in general or employees they're dirty they're on the take they're don't have a lot of intelligence you name it it's always negative but you watch the same movie about from police department or military, they're all the heroes so that yeah. sort of puts a stigma over i think but it's not really that bad you just gotta not pay attention to what other people say and just go i made a good career of it um I had some fun, had some headaches. It, it can be a headache. I'm not going to lie, but uh, it's not that bad. So if anybody's interested and the good thing, if anybody's interested in like say the marshal service or whatever, your, your time stops if you get in the BOP because you're on that federal LE pay in retirement. So several people use it as a springboard to go to the marshal service, uh, FBI, whatever. So just something to consider. So it, it, it's been pretty good to me. So I've got to talk to a lot of good staff, uh, was mentored by a lot of good staff, uh, even worked with one that was uh, in the 1987 Atlanta riot. Um, he's a little different, but uh, once you got to know him, he, he wasn't that bad. He just, but like I told guys that sort of judged him, I'm like, you go through what he did and see how you turn out. So. Well, tell the audience about uh, Top Guns there in Terre Haute. It's a rather unique indoor ranch. Oh, yeah. Um, Top Guns, uh, in Top Guns training, it's a, uh, we've got three ranges. It's a large gun store. We've got three ranges, uh, indoor ranges. Uh, one's 20 yards, one's 25, and then the rifle range is 50, but from 25 in, we can do 180-degree shoot house. Uh, we set up a lot of the uh, shoot house scenarios with our school protection officers here and local law enforcement. Um, the owner is very, very pro training and law enforcement. Um, Ellie's in there all the time training. I believe I sent you a video of that uh, shoot house we did. We got audio. It's pretty good. Uh, we've got rental guns, several, several rental guns. Uh, we do classes on generally Saturday, but we do some private lessons through the week. Uh, they have a pizza place called Rolly's right next door, hooked to the building. You don't have, have to leave the building. Unfortunately, 
they've had an issue with the climbing cafe. It was a big rock climbing wall. It was a great place to, for kids uh, to hang out. Um, unfortunately, uh, a second owner opened it, trying to keep it going, and just the revenue just wasn't there. So hopefully maybe a third one will open it up. It, it really was a good thing, I thought. But um, if you're in Terre Haute area, come by and see us. It's a good place. It's a neat range. Yeah, I was there during the summertime, and there was an ice cream stand set up in the in the range. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's there too. I forgot about that. Um, yeah. Watch the scoop. That's the name of it. Yeah, that's good ice cream. Yeah, and there's a bandstand. Pardon me. There was a bandstand set up as well. I remember. Oh yeah, yeah. They um, well, the owner is sort of a a musician on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got a little stage on the top and uh, there's a little drum set set up and i they don't play a whole lot but it's there so if you got some mad drumming skills come on over well you need to bring carl wren in there to teach and he can he can do a concert as well Well, maybe i'll reach out to him see if we can get something worked out so yeah and and the the gun shop's got a pretty good selection um i know when i was there there, there, last time it was they were toting around 4500 in the showroom something like that it's it's huge i don't think you'll see one that size around yeah i know when i was there they had a bunch of uh special edition colt 1911s and 38 super that were two-toned from the factory yeah yeah there was like 30 or something got a couple of them left but uh they they went pretty quick yeah i'd imagine it's right off of i-70 there in Terre Haute. it's really sort of a torture to work there because you don't want to bring home a paycheck you just see all those nice items that yeah. you just think you have to have <laughs> yeah yeah i walked through the door was looking around I was like i better leave or i'm not going to make anything off of this class i'm going to come home with the trunk yeah. full of stuff uh, yeah, it was very nice and uh, uh lots of hotels and restaurants and stuff around there for people that want to travel there from out of town to take a class there as well so uh, what are your class offerings typically um well right now we're uh we're trying to work it but it we're having an issue like everybody just people just i don't think they realize how much they'll benefit from going to training mm-hmm. but uh our, our good classes our good sellers we've got introductory and then we've got a women's only it's the same class except we offer a women's only because mm-hmm. sometimes women want to make a a group kind of right. thing just just them um, those are that's a good selling class usually uh we've offered some intro to personal protection where we'll go over some good techniques on drawing from the holster how to engage uh how to not shoot and get hemmed up we've covered that a lot uh we offered a few carbine classes uh but though they're sort of hit and miss um It's funny, we canceled one because we, we didn't have anybody signed up. And then like three days later, somebody, hey, you got any carbine classes? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. last week we did. <laughs> so um, we're trying to grow the business there on that side. Uh, it's coming, you know. It's just, yeah. yeah. It takes a while to build um, up a culture of, of training. Oh, it does. It does. And Well, and I'll even add, even uh, some of my guys that work with me, and not just Bureau of Prison, any agency instructor, sometimes they fall in that false. They think they're all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm challenging anybody listening. If you haven't, I'm challenging you. 
spend the money and get, I mean, Dave Spalding's retired, but go to a good quality class like that. Uh, Lee's classes are excellent. I've been through two. Uh, they are on par, if not better, than the top Fletzy instructor I've ever seen. So I, I'm telling you, break away from that little coast flip. Agency training is good. It's a good baseline, but just because you're a leader, run your agency stuff, sometimes you get that institutional it's just stale and there's more than one way to do stuff. And that's the problem I have with some of the way Fletzy was doing it is, Oh, you got to do this thumbs forward all the time. hundred percent. Well, we're shooting Berettas. It's got this big diving board out for this, the slide stop. How many yep. times have you done that and locked it back when there's still BBs in the magazine, right? Yeah. Um, or what I see in a lot of classes is, the Smith & Wesson Easy Shield, real good gun. But the target audience for that is generally women 65 years and older, right? Yeah. They don't have the hand strength. So I, I've seen a lot of folks try to just drill it into their head, thumbs forward. Well, they don't get that safety disengaged because it pins at the bottom in like a 1911. Yeah. So you have them do that revolver grip. Yep. That might be the, the internet break like your red dot uh, – comparison there but revolver grips can still or crush grip however you want to call it can still be relevant i've had to that's the only way they can have that gun go off 100 percent of the time so yeah but places like fletzy or other agencies oh no you got to do this and i see a lot of folks come in trying to train folks they're with and i just sort of what about this way (laughs) oh no it's got to be this one okay so, but I challenge you if you're an agency instructor, take up. I mean, this is a great time because we got some good quality classes, and uh, you can reach out to these with Facebook. You can reach out and make one on one contact with them. Yep. That's how me and you got yep. hooked up, and I got you up here for some classes. So, sure. And we'll be, we'll be doing we'll be doing the Range Master Instructor Development class there in January. That class is sold out, but you can always get on a waiting list. Yep, uh, looking forward to that one. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. Well, Everett, uh, appreciate you joining us and, and shedding some in light, insight into uh, the BOP. Well, hopefully I delivered. Uh, I hope so. I think, I'm glad you asked me, and I had fun. Sure. I, I, yeah, I, it's a little bit different than from our, some of our previous episodes, but then again, not different from our previous episodes because we're trying to uh, – you know, capturing documents some history. And just, I think this is you know, one of those things that's just not talked about a lot. So hopefully the audience found it uh, or finds it interesting. I guess we'll know when we start seeing the numbers this coming week, uh, when, when, the, when the show goes out there. Uh, sometimes I put one out and I think, oh, this is going to be great. And it's gets kind of normal numbers. And sometimes I put one out thinking, eh, and that one blows up and and, and does really well. And so it's just you never can tell what's what's going to strike a fancy with 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 the consumer, but um, you know I enjoyed the conversation because I enjoyed talking with you, and I always uh, like getting the history of stuff uh, documented and, and just letting the public hear about what actually goes on that they might not really know about. Is the big thing. Well, Everett, thank you for your time, and to the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. And thank you for choosing to spend it with us.